Welcome back, everybody, to Beyond the Shadows. I'm author and ghost historian Mike Ricksecker. Down in the chat room, quarantine ghost haunting the chat. We have a fantastic episode coming up for you tonight. We're going to be talking about urban legends. Basically, this is inspired from the Haunted Road Media YouTube channel's latest upload, which is Helltown Exploration 2020. So basically, this past Friday, uh, Tom Nick, Mick Nicholas and Nick Moulet, who you guys recognize down there, down in the chat, uh, we're in town. I haven't seen those guys in almost a year because of COVID and everything. So, you know, all the conventions and events and all of that stuff has been shut down. They came out to Ohio on Friday. We went out to Helltown, kind of gave them the tour of the area, posted that video yesterday on the Hunter Road Media YouTube channel. And I know many of you have seen that. So great, great area. So that inspired this conversation for tonight, Urban Legends. And what I did is I went out onto oh, my social media, Facebook and what have you, and posted the question, what urban legends do you want us to talk about? So Helltown was one of them. You guys do want to talk about that. And we have several others down there that I do have queued up for this tonight. So um, let's go ahead and uh, get into this. Tom McNicholas is there in the chat. And I see that uh, something funky has happened with uh, the audio to video translation so wonderful this is going to be a little out of sync for those on youtube but uh, the podcast you guys are going to be good to go i <laughs> had uh, sharon lane down there in the chat saying ohio is a target rich uh is a target rich spooky environment yes it is yes it really is and it's my home state so no, i have no problem saying that so uh yeah so let's go ahead and uh well, that is Mark's book. We had a fantastic uh, guest on Edge of the Rabbit Hole last uh, hour with Mark Fiorentino. So those on Beyond the Shadows that didn't see that, I highly suggest you get his book, Master Reality. So that was that screenshot. Um, and Pungai Fungi, how about some lesser-known urban legends like ones in your neighborhood? I do have a couple of lesser-known ones in here. Or, um, you know, if you have one Pungai Fungi that you want to talk about, we can get to it. But... Um, I, I posted this one, and I'm going off the feedback I was given. And uh, Quarantine goes to saying video and audio is perfectly synced on their end. So so we're good there. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, it looks a little funky on my end. So, um, um, Yeah, So and also getting told this is a great pick. Uh, this is, for those of you that are unfamiliar, this is Stanford Road out in the Boston Mills area, uh, which is otherwise known as Helltown. So this road from this point on is completely closed off. And this area of Ohio has gotten, um, it's gotten a real bad rap, especially in recent years. A couple years ago, there was a documentary put out, originally aired on Destination America and now airs on Travel Channel. And I'm not knocking either of those networks, especially Travel Channel, since, you know, Alaska Triangle. And uh, <laughs> in any case, um, yeah, that documentary was a fabrication. Um, and the way they did it, of course, they, they made everything seem to be real, that it was like a real, uh, you know, documentary crew that went out there and interviewed these people, et cetera, et cetera. They were all Canadian actors. And the stories that they told on there essentially 
you know, were the urban legends that are famous for the area. They played part of it as like the old PBS documentary uh, for the good of all back in the early 80s, which, you know, told the true story of what happened with those people in that area. And so now, you know, I get people coming out to the Hunter Road Media YouTube videos on Helltown talking about basically the stories that were conveyed on that. You can call it a mockumentary, but really it was just, com it was just completely false. Um, so in any case, what happened in this area, we'll get to some of the legends here in a moment. What happened in this area is that in the 1970s, our federal government decided that we needed more national parks. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But what they did is they decided that we needed to make some of these national parks out of areas that were already populated, that we had to go back and reclaim the land and take it from people. So this was federal eminent domain that they just went and took property from people. Now, they did give them, you know, some money to go move or what have you. Um, and this actually cost us a lot of money to push these people out and relocate them. And there were a lot of people that fought this because these were their homes. Their families had grown up their generations, generations. And they started coming up with crazy rules, especially in this area in Ohio where, well, you know, your, you know, your house exceeds over the top of the trees, you know, by like a half an inch or whatever. So you're out. And, you know, so there are like these crazy rules that they would use to push people out. They went and fought this in Congress, ultimately, you know, coming up with a, uh, you know, other deals and what have you down the road. Uh, I essentially on this road here, this Stanford Road, um, just a ways down, there was one last house there back in 2016, and you know it was demolished somewhere between 2016 and 2017 because basically I went out there five months later and it was gone. Cost millions and millions and millions of dollars to do this. It is a very nice park that they've put together. I'll give them that. My take has always been that they didn't have to boot all the people out if they wanted to build a park around them. Just don't allow the area to continue to grow and grow and grow and get overpopulated. But they booted people out. So in this area, uh, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. So this is that house that I was talking about, the last house in 2016. Those listening to the podcast will not be able to, to see this. I took Tom and Nick out there. They actually you know, walked through here and what have you. Um, and they've made the area completely look like nothing was ever there. Like this whole driveway area, uh, they redug the ditch there. It's all gone. It's all gone. They're actually planting saplings around there to cover it up even more. So there's uh, the, the one building that's really still around is what we call the Great Red Barn, which you can actually get into now. Uh, they're probably eventually going to tear that down. Of course, you get the kids in here. You see the 666, the pentagrams, upside down crosses. These are the things that end up leading to, uh, you know, these different rumors about satanic cults, uh, witches in the area. Like one of the crazy legends being, well, there's a post there with a W, and that was, you know, to signify the witch. And it's like, well, no, there was the train. The W is for whistle. <laughs> you know, crazy things like that. Um, there's the crazy stories about the satanic church. You know, it has upside down crosses on it. 
and I, I didn't put the photo up here, but um, you know, basically that church with the upside down crosses, well, it's a, what they call a gingerbread type style architecture. And so it's just in the design work. It's not really an upside down cross. It's just des design. And that's the way the, um, you know, the one side comes down it has a little frilly thing on the end. So, you know, if you kind of look at it, it's like, oh, that might be, an, it's not an upside down cross. Come on, people. But these are the stories that have come out. And the reason why these stories just proliferated so quickly was because of the speed in which these people were ushered out of the area. It happened so fast uh, within a couple of years time that you had all these abandoned houses all over the area. And when a house became abandoned, many times they let the fire department come in and do training on the houses so they would set the house on fire and the you know uh firemen would have to go in there and, and put out the fire so you end up with all these burned out houses all over the place well it made to made it look like a you know a hell zone right so that's one of the uh, stories that came out of there um the abandoned school bus very very uh famous story there around the Helltown area you know you know, the stories around it always had to do with, you know, murderers. You know, they stopped the school bus and they killed the children and all these different crazy things. Well, it's not true at all. So there was a family there. They were renovating their house. And for whatever reason, they decided that while they were renovating the house, they got this old school bus from somewhere and they were basically camping out in the school bus until they got done with their house renovations. Well, all of a sudden, this eminent domain comes from the federal government they lose their house they're out of the area well they're not going to take the school bus with them they're going to go to their new house so they just left the school bus there and all of a sudden all the rumors came about the cemetery there all kinds of crazy stories about that like the trees moving i have no idea where the trees moving came from but they also talk about um you know ghosts sitting on park benches and, and things like that well there's no park benches in that cemetery so no idea where that one came from but there you go that one came about so you have all these stories proliferating for all this time. And some of them, when we talk about with urban legends, they do have a grain of truth to them. So you hear stories about the massive snake. It's actually kind of true to a degree, but it has nothing to do with the that area or that time frame of the 70s and 80s when it became known as Helltown. So... Earlier this year, there was a gentleman uh, who contacted me, and he had lived in that area when he was a child, grew up, and all that. So he lived through the whole eminent domain uh, in that area, and he had like all the stories. <laughs> he had all the stories about why these different, you know, rumors came about and what the real stories were. So when it comes to the giant snake. Um, and, and I'm kind of saving him for, well, we agreed, this is like January, February timeframe before COVID hit, that the next time I was going to go out, I'd, I'd have him come out, we talk and interview and all that. Well, because of COVID, and he's an older gentleman, I didn't want to risk anything there. So hopefully next year we'll have him come out and tell all the stories. So I'm, I'm not going to get into all of, all of his stories, but when it comes to the giant snake, well, apparently there was 
some sort of accident with a circus train coming through the area, and there is the railroad that goes right through there. Um, in fact, you know, Boston Mills has a, has a depot right there. And, well, yeah, a uh, giant python did escape and had been seen in the woods periodically, but this is 1930s, so this is quite a while before that. Um, the toxic dump, you know, people talk about, you know, the government dumping toxic waste there. Well, you know, it wasn't the government. You know, there was a local, uh, there was a local, what do you want to call it? It wasn't a dump, a, um, oh, but in any case, there was this guy that, uh, it was a junkyard, it was a local junkyard, and he was just letting crap pile up, pile up, pile up, and he did dump some stuff in there so it was a local guy it wasn't the government and yeah so he had some nasty stuff there so it's things like that that kind of blew up into these bigger stories and so the metamorphosis of the legends is really really interesting and there's always somewhere in there a a grain of truth like even when it comes to that post with w well it had nothing to do with a witch but the post with the W does have its origins and, you know, hit the whistle for the train. So go ahead and uh, if you guys have any questions, comments, you want me to talk about a specific uh, urban legend or what have you, you can throw that in there. I am going to go down the list uh, that basically I acquired through Facebook. So that was Helltown. Uh, that was a request there to discuss. And... You know, when it gets to like the origins of an urban legend, I do have one uh, in a little while here that really kind of, and I've talked about this on here before, but it really to me breaks down how a legend can get created. So another request was for, um, how did I, okay, I misplaced some of these. So we'll get to these, those other ones there in a little bit. Um well, no, we'll go to that. We'll, we'll go right there. So Stoll Cemetery. Sorry, I know you guys in the podcast are like, what in the world is he talking about? Uh, the Stoll Cemetery. So this is in Kansas. This is supposed to be one of the gateways to hell. Uh, I believe it was Adam Tillery that requested this one. And so basically, um, well, you know what? Here. Let me show you guys something. Again, on the podcast, you're not going to see this. But those on the YouTube channel, I actually cover this one in Campfire Tales Midwest, this gateway to hell. So Campfire Tales Midwest, if you guys haven't read this yet, it these are fictional tales based on real history and legends. So, you know, I have a couple of people that have uh, come across this old book that basically leads them to the Stull Cemetery, and the Gateway to Hell. So you take a look at this cemetery photo, and you see the old building in the background. And what that was, it was actually a church. But there are so many different uh, crazy stories about that, uh, that you know, it was used for devil and occult worship, um, and then supposedly the devil himself, Satan, had made appearances at the cemetery. Um, all kinds of crazy stuff. So the uh, 
The entrance to hell is supposed to be sealed by a slab somewhere near the building. And, of course, within, you know, the uh, the story that I've written in Campfire Tales, you know, they find it. Uh, and then once you find it, you descend down a stairwell and time becomes manipulated. Um, it, it doesn't work the way we usually experience it, which is kind of ironic considering the conversation we just had with Mark Fiorentino uh, on Edge of the Rabbit Hole. Um, so... That's the building, but there's also um, the Devil's Road, which is supposed to go by it, where all kinds of crazy stories, like a young boy was accidentally burned to death by his father, and a man was once found hanging from a tree. You know, you know all of these stories that can't really become, that you can't really substantiate, and they just compound and compound and compound on top of each other. Um you know, the, the tree that the hanging was supposed to be on, um, you know, was, um, that was taken down like 20 years ago. The building was bulldozed a few years back. So these markers are no longer there, but the legends seem to have remained. Um, Stull has a lot of problems with that cemetery, with people going and going and going because of the legends. And... Uh, you know, people will go there at night. So the sheriffs are, you know, out there a lot. And that, unfortunately, with sites that have these urban legends attached to them, you know, legend tripping is cool. Um, we had, well, we had Ricky Rocket on here, uh, yeah, the drummer of Poison, on uh, Edge of the Rabbit Hole last year, and he has his legend tripping channel where he goes to a number of different places to research the legends, but he respects you know the laws of the land the rules of the property and what have you so like with the stole cemetery you know he's not going out there after hours because you know, cemeteries you know typically close at dusk um you know in stole or they are very adamant about that because of all the different problems that uh that they have out there um helltown previously talking about they had signs up there for a long long time you know, you're you're not allowed on you know this side or this piece of property. That big red barn I showed you um, in stables from it on that photo. Um, even last year, they still had signs up there. You're not allowed in here. They've taken those signs down. So, you know, Friday it was free rain. You know, go ahead on in there. But um, yeah, I, I'm not going to uh, to disrespect uh, those people's wishes. And I've seen especially here on, on YouTube where we're running this live, um, there are all kinds of people that go running amok on private property and get themselves in trouble. So got to be very, very careful of that when hunting down urban legends. So um, Robert Hanna, is that place active with paranormal activity? Um, well, actually, okay, I missed the question. Uh, thank you, um, Quarantine Ghost. I actually missed Betty's beforehand. Mike, do you need permission to get into these places yeah it i mean if um if it's private property definitely get permission a lot of times there's rules i was just talking about the stole cemetery you can go to the the stole cemetery during the day of course most cemeteries close at dusk you know so respect that or get permission um there are several uh cemeteries i've investigated at night usually you have to coordinate that with the sheriff so just 
develop a you know rapport with your local sheriff or the sheriff of the area and you know set that up you know we've done it many times before and then robert hannah mike is the, that place uh active with paranormal activity so are you referring to you're referring to helltown I'm, I'm thinking that's the only because stall um is is a cemetery and I, I mean there would be maybe a little paranormal activity at a cemetery with stall um i don't i don't think that cemeteries are natively haunted i think you can experience paranormal activity there uh, because you're you know, you're going and you start talking about some of these different people. I think they kind of tune into that or they may come when you know family's visiting or maybe they're burying somebody else. So I think paranormal activity can happen at cemeteries. I've experienced it there for sure, but it's not native to that as far as the Helltown area. So this is kind of... Uh, a little tricky with this because all of the legends kind of make it sound like that you know the paranormal activity is what has made all of this uh these different things happened uh all of these different legends but more of what i believe it is if there is paranormal activity still happening out there which it seems like there there could certainly be um is that there used to be all kinds of houses there and they were there for several generations so many of those houses could have certainly developed a haunt and from the research that i've done yes there were some houses there that were haunted that were torn down well we've talked on this channel before in the haunted road media what happens to those spirits when their house is torn down well, we have a lot of different theories that, you know, maybe they decide to move on, you know, whether that's go to the light or go to another location. Maybe they go find family somewhere. But the other idea is that they could possibly still linger right there where the house was. And they might end up developing an attachment to the land because the building was also once there. And even... Well, certainly with residual haunts. If it's a residual haunt, it could still play back. And you hear some stories, like especially out in, um, like in the UK. I've heard stories about the apparition, residual haunt, of like Roman soldiers walking down the street. And you just see their head on the ground walking down the street. Well, the road used to be a little you know, further down because of the way things kind of get buried over time. The original road is kind of underground, and so they're still walking along that, but you're only able to see their head because the rest of the body is underground. It's just it's a residual haunt. Um, it's just a playback. And so some of these could be residual haunts that are playing back. You might still see some of that activity out there in the woods now. You know, Tom thought he saw a uh, shadow out there at Helltown at the one area that we were at. He's trying to figure out what it was, and the stuff that was moving up higher in the trees, he did just, okay, that's a bird. But there was some stuff that was lower down that he couldn't quite figure out. and was just a shadow. Tom, you could talk more to that down there in the chat. So, um, Victoria Monday, are we having a Halloween haunted HRM story? Now, we can do something like that. Um, we'll talk about that in October. 
I mean, it's September. I'm happy that it's starting to become fall. Well, we've got, what, three weeks until it's officially fall. But, um, yeah, I'm certainly getting in the mood. I did have pumpkin spice coffee earlier, so. Okay. So, moving on here. What's the next one we have? Okay, so I threw up this photo here. This is actually the Santa Fe Depot in Guthrie, Oklahoma. And the reason why I brought this up, uh, we had some people ask, well, Sean Gilmore specifically, ask about the classic haunts or classic urban legends of like Gravity Hill and the uh, Crybaby Bridges. And it seems like every state has one they have a crybaby bridge and they have a gravity hill sometimes many times multiple ones so you might have a state that has three different crybaby bridges and four different gravity hills so these okay i have the uh the photo here of the santa fe depot because this was actually featured in the movie fingerprints and using the gravity hill phenomenon their idea was that their legend was of the children pushing the cars onto the train tracks and the train obliterating the cars and you hear those type of stories with uh, these different gravity hills uh, the one out in maryland not far from where i used to live was of uh, civil war soldiers uh, pushing cannons up the hill and so you know, legend was if you, you know, just put your car in neutral, then the Civil War soldiers will push your car up the hill. What it is is basically an optical illusion. If you actually go out there uh, and take the measurements, it's a very, very slight decline. But looking at it with your eye, there's an optical illusion where it looks like it's actually uphill but it's not it's actually um, a slight decline and you're actually moving down but just because of the way the terrain looks it looks like you're actually going uphill but you're really not uh, with the crybaby bridges this is basically a lot of you know audio phenomena usually i mean some of these bridges are certainly haunted and they've had their their accidents but usually it's some sort of uh, pareidolia uh, some sort of auditory phenomenon that you're hearing that's nearby whether it's you know something from the water or because you know a lot of these bridges of course are spanning you know rivers and, and what have you in the way those you know little canyons uh, play out you might have a little river bend or what have you. There, you're hearing some different echoes come from different locations, and a lot of times it ends up sounding like you know the cry of a baby. And so then you end up getting these stories of you know car accidents and you know, or uh, you know women throwing their you know babies over the bridge and then committing suicide themselves. You know, you know legend after legend after legend. You know pretty pretty similar and every state seems to have this so um but those those are the legends that and, and they usually incorporate some sort of local tragedy that did really happen you know when i talked about the civil war soldiers you know pushing the cannons up the hill well there were you know that's certain that did happen <laughs> the civil war soldiers were in that area or they'll have 
um, you know, some tragedy with, you know, like with the baby or, you know, a car accident or what have you on these different bridges, they will wrap that into the story. Um, you know, there's the, um, um, the, the one with the motorcycle out in, well, not too far here down the road in Ohio and, uh, Elmore. Yeah. I visited that area. What was it? Um, a year ago now. And, you know, it's just a little bridge. You know, guy coming home from the war finds his girl with some other man. He goes tearing off and, you know, goes over the bridge. And people still go out there every year to pay him his respects because on his anniversary of his death, he's supposed to come riding through. So, um, you know, and he's supposed to be headless because apparently on his way down, he lost his head and got decapitated. So they've tied in whatever you know, phenomenon is going on with this little bridge to a local story, and there's therefore you have the legends. So um, Tom McNicholas down there in chat saying there is a gravity hill in the Orlando area that he checked out. Very, very cool. So um, Aline to the fam, don't we have the London Bridge in the U.S.? Um, I'm not sure which bridge you're referring to because I... I am familiar of course with the london bridge in london <laughs> which i haven't been to but um if you have a specific story go ahead and let me know go ahead and let me know so oh and um victoria monday answered that it's in uh lake havasaw i uh, went she went there before she moved back to texas okay I'm, I'm not familiar with that that there's a london bridge in the u.s okay cool Awesome. Um, all right, moving on. We have, well, we've talked about this one before too, but this was another request. That is the quote-unquote Gore Orphanage area, which is actually the ruins of the Swift Mansion. And so there's Ghosty on the ruins of the Swift Mansion. Basically the story, like I said, we've talked about it here before, uh, but for those that are unfamiliar... Story goes that old man Gore ran an orphanage. He was very mean to the children. Uh, he beat them. He locked them in their rooms at night. Well, one night the orphanage caught on fire. He ran out and saved his own life, left the children locked in the orphanage, and they all perished and died in the flames. That's the legend. And there's probably only one element of that that's actually true we'll get to that in a moment so this location that they call the gore orphanage was never the gore orphanage there was an orphanage up the hill from this location the building that they call the gore orphanage was actually the swift mansion it was a residence of the uh, swift family back in the mid 1800s later the wilbur family moved in so only two families ever lived in this house the wilbur's uh, moved out in 1897, or was it 96? It was before 1900. It was 1897 or 1896, one of the two. The orphanage didn't even move into the area until 1903. That was up the hill. So where the confusion comes into play is with the name of the road that goes right by it, which is called Gore Orphanage Road. The reason why it's called Gore Orphanage Road is, well, first it was called Gore Road because... A gore 
is a wedge-shaped piece of land to make a map correction. So when the surveyors came out, at one point they realized, oh, hey, you know, previous map surveyors made an error. We need to insert a gore on the map. And so the road that went through there, they just called it Gore Road. And it was like that for several, several, several years. Well, when the orphanage came in in 1903, the Light of Hope Orphanage, they just appended the name orphanage onto the name of the road so that people who previously knew that the road was called Gore Road, yeah, they're familiar with it. So, okay, this is Gore Road. Those looking for the orphanage would see that this is the road for the orphanage. So basically it would help those two people that, you know, one that are familiar with Gore, one that's looking for the orphanage. There you go, Gore Orphanage. But there's never a place called Gore Orphanage. It was just two names brought together. So let's get back first, however, before we get into the orphanage stuff, the mansion itself. So this is the actual Swift Mansion. It was a uh, Greek Revival style. In fact, the library in Vermilion, Ohio, uh, is actually the exterior was modeled after this. Uh, it was a very, very beautiful house. And this is the family. We believe this is the Wilbur family. Um, take note of the children. There is a tragedy with children associated with this property, although it didn't happen on this property. So the Wilbur family, like I said, um, they ended up moving out 1890. I'm going to say 96 now. Because <laughs> I know there was a seven years difference. And 1903 is when the orphanage came into play. 1896, they're out. When they were there beforehand, um, the grandchildren, it was the grandparents that lived there. Their grandchildren, four of them, died of diphtheria within the span of seven days. This was in the uh, 1880s. Very, very sad and tragic. They did. The children did not die in the property. Um, they died at their at their own home. However, the grandmother was completely devastated and basically lost her senses. It was very sad. So she started uh, putting place settings for the grandchildren uh, on, the, on the dining room table in the Swift Mansion. Um, one of the other things uh, that happened there, the Wilbers were spiritualists. And they were part of the spiritualism movement. And so they did conduct seances at the house to try to reach out to the spirits of the children. Now, modern legends have twisted this to say they were Satanists. They were never Satanists. As far as being spiritualists and conducting seances, um, there's enough corroborating stories to kind of back that up. Um, you know, there's, there's not like a photo of a seance going on in the house or anything like that, but, um, but I think there's enough corroborating stories to say, yeah, they did conduct a, a, maybe a seance or two, I don't know, maybe a couple more there at the house to try to contact the spirits of the children. Again, this is all before the orphanage ever came into play there. What did happen there? Um, that was very tragic. Once the orphanage came into play, again, about seven years after the Wilbers moved out, orphanage goes in up the hill, run by the Sprungers. And the part of the story that was true is the abuse dealt out at the orphanage. So this is a newspaper clipping. Um, 
to you know show okay that house down in the lower right hand corner that was up the hill from the swift mansion that was the girls dormitory the boys dormitory was also up there um basically children escaped and reported the sprungers they went through an actual court trial in 1909 uh, because of all of this abuse that was going on there uh, at the orphanage this whole time the house the mansion down the hill is abandoned the orphanage did own the land and they used the field behind it for farming and they used all the land at the top of the hill for farming that was their primary thing is they they farmed but the house itself stayed abandoned and it felt derelict i imagine the kids probably played in there um, but most of the time they were working the one kid stole money for a bike so that he could, you know, use the bike to bring cars, the carts up and down the hill. It was a, it's a pretty steep hill because previously they were just pushing it by hand up and down the hill. So he got beat. You heard stories. There were stories about, um, you know, the children getting nibbled on by rats. Uh, they were malnourished. They weren't given good food. Uh, they weren't educated. The... Um, they, they were like 15 kids using one thing of bath water. You know, it was ridiculous. So all that was true. By 1916, the Sprungers were out. The orphanage was closed down. The house down the hill, the Swift Mansion, was still there crumbling because still nobody lived there. It did eventually burn down. So I guess there's a second element that's kind of true that it did burn down um in 1923 again the orphanage was long since gone up the hill um and what was going on at the time was there were there was somebody interested in restoring the house so there are some rumors that you know somebody burned it down before that could happen that may have been an arson fire likely it was kids in there playing around it was deemed the local haunted house and kids were going to there and, and screwing around anyway so it's more likely the case that kids accidentally set the thing on fire in 1923 and it did burn down and now we have uh, these ruins the fire may have been transposed this is a theory that's out there that the mass number of children dying in the fire may have been transposed from this tragedy in the cleveland area this is all you know pretty much in the cleveland area vermilion is maybe like 30 35 miles west of cleveland so it's kind of have to really push it to transpose this but um in this fire, which happened around the same time that the Sprungers were going through their court trials for their abuse of the children um, at the Light of Hope Orphanage, 172 children died in this fire. We didn't have the same fire codes back then. And so as they were trying to get out of the building and the doors opened the opposite direction that they were supposed to, they basically were all stacked at the door. It was very, very tragic. So that number of children dying in that blaze may have been transposed onto 
what we now call the Gore Orphanage, which again was never the Gore Orphanage. Um, some interesting things I did find there. Um, so let me bring up, I know you guys on the podcast are not going to be able to see this, but okay, here's another shot of the, of the Swift Mansion building. And you see on the right-hand side, there's this pillar, this, um, basically it's like sandstone pillar that's standing there along the fence line. There's actually, there were, uh, several of these on the property, you know, whether it was for, uh, the fence or to mark entrances, I've, I have other photos, but this is the only one that uh, that I'm showing here. Um, when I went out there several times to investigate the area, there's one that's out there that's been chipped away. People have spray painted on it, of course, obscenities and what have you. The, the kids have really done their uh, number on these. When you look at the photos, and like I said, there's several of them in the photos, uh, at least three that I can uh, that I can deduce. And I'm looking at that, and I'm like, okay, there's one here. Where are the other two? And certainly, yeah, kids are chipping away at the thing and having their fun with spray painting and all that, but there's no way that they're like yanking one of these off the ground or knocking it off the base and tossing it into the back of their truck. I mean, these things are heavy. I found them. Up the hill where the dormitories used to be for the orphanage, I found them. At the top of the hill, and you see the house back there, this house rests on the property where the boys' dormitory used to be. And you see flanking the driveway two of the pillars. So this is where those pillars ended up. Those pillars used to be down there at the Swift Mansion. I don't have any written documentation. Basically, here's what I think what happened. When the orphanage was running, and they did own the property down there, I think the Sprungers had the boys go down there and take two of those pillars and haul them up the hill. Can you imagine this? A bunch of kids (laughs) hauling those pillars with just little carts by hand up the hill to put on that property. It's crazy, crazy stuff. It's sad. It's very, very sad. Uh, Victoria Monday asks, oh, uh, let me scroll back up. There's one before that. So Sharon Lane, Mike, I ask you every time, but why is Ohio so dang haunted? I don't know. I guess it's the energy we have there. I have here. Um, I mean, I have some theories, and I haven't, I haven't ventured down this rabbit hole too much because there's so many other projects that I'm working on. I mean, for one, you do have a lot of water energy here. We have uh, Lake Erie, you know, right on the northern border. The entire northern border of Ohio is Lake Erie. And then along the, what, part of the east, and then all along the south is the Ohio River. So, you know, much of the state is encased by water. We also have a number 
of the uh, ancient earthworks here. So like Serpentine Mound, the Great Circle Earthworks, you know, they're all over. And there are many, many more uh, before they got plowed over by farmers or um, the Smithsonian. I know the Smithsonian doesn't like to talk about it, but they had... Um, you know, the curator back in the 1800s, that anything that was pre-Columbian, they didn't care about, just go ahead and obliterate it, uh, which was, you know, extremely terrible. And so you had a lot of ancient culture here uh, in the state of Ohio. So I think a lot of those things play into those hauntings. I think the land has a lot of energy here. So... Uh, from Victoria, where did the Bloody Mary in the Mirror urban legend come from or start? Well, Bloody Mary was, um, you know, Queen Mary, the, the Tudor dynasty, uh, you know, Elizabeth's sister, you know, before Elizabeth uh, became queen. So basically that's, um, I can't tell you specifically when the actual uh, legend started, um, but basically that is the Mary that, they're talking about and trying to you know, bring forth from the whole mirror thing. Um, I don't know. You, you might be able to, to Google that one, I suppose, and maybe somebody has a better idea. But, you know, you're talking about probably several hundred years now of this um, of this legend. <laughs> um, all right. So we'll move on a little bit more here. So that's all. Core Orphanage, Swift Mansion. Um, so, Skirvin Hotel. We'll cover this real quick because this does get into, and I've talked about this one before too. Uh, this does get into a uh, great example of the origins of an urban legend. So, uh, this one with the Skirvin Hotel, this is in Oklahoma City. There's Effie the Chambermaid, and as the story goes, Effie, Chambermaid, had an affair, or I could say the proprietor of the Hotel W.B. Skirvin had an affair with Effie the Chambermaid and impregnated her. Well, he didn't want the scandal getting out, so when she had the baby, he kept her upstairs in the top floor penthouse of the hotel. Well, because she felt trapped up there, she grew despondent, and she jumped out the top story window with the baby to both of their deaths. Problem with this story, actually many problems. One, there's no record of an Effie ever having worked at the Skirvin Hotel. Secondly, there's no record of a woman or a baby or both uh, jumping to their deaths from the top story of the Skirvin Hotel. So where did the story come from if these people didn't actually exist? W.B. Skirvin did actually exist, but where did this come from? So in doing the research of the hotel, I did find that there was a salesman from Dallas who jumped to his death from the Skirvin Hotel. This was early 1930s. I understand it's a man. We'll get to that in a minute. The top story plays into a little bit of a question here because when he jumped, it wasn't the top story of the hotel. Let me show you the picture of the Skirvin Hotel again. So you see how about 
I don't know what you want to call that, seven-eighths of the way up the, the hotel, there's this line, and then you have a couple other floors after that uh, before you get to the top of the hotel. Well, that first line there, uh, that was the original height of the hotel, and that is the floor from which he jumped. When he jumped, the floors above that that were added on were just recently added on. And I want to say it was um, the 12th floor that he jumped from. So since those floors were just added on, somebody's telling the story. Hey, the salesman from Dallas jumped from the 12th story of the hotel. Oh, really? Word starts getting around. Well, if you had known for the last 15 years that the Skirvin Hotel had 12 floors, not realizing, hey, they've added on a couple of floors, at some point somebody's going to say, instead of the 12th floor of the hotel, just easier to say, yeah, he jumped from the top floor of the hotel. Because in your mind, the 12th floor is the top floor. So that's where the top floor comes in. That salesman is the only one who ever jumped to his death from the Skirvin Hotel. A few years later, there was a woman who attempted to jump out the window of the Skirvin Hotel. It wasn't the top floor or anything like that, but it was a woman who attempted a security card uh, was able to stop her in time, pull her back. She got charged $11 for drunkenness. So then where does the baby come in to play? Because obviously those are, okay, you can put together, you know, a jump from the top story, a woman who attempted. Okay, we're starting to mesh things together. Well, there are a number of uh, ghost stories that come out of the Skirvin Hotel. The place is definitely very haunted. There are all kinds of apparitions and shadows. People have seen the uh, apparition of a chambermaid in their bedrooms. That's where the chambermaid part comes into play. People have heard the phantom rattlings of the maid carts up and down the hallways. That's another place where the chambermaid comes into play. There's even a guy who claims that he was in the shower and a chambermaid showed up in the shower with him. I don't know about that one. But those are where the chambermaids come into play. The baby, people have claimed uh, that they've heard the phantom cries of babies up and down the hallways. That's where the baby comes into play. So you have all these elements combining to form this urban legend. Yeah, there are grains of truth within there. They're all separate, but they've been mashed together to make this legend of Effie the chambermaid. Somewhere along the way, somebody gave her the name of Effie. Don't know where that came from. But the other elements are certainly there. And they've all just been mixed up together. So Robert Hanna, does the Bel Air House give you the creep? So Bel Air House is in Bel Air, Ohio. Um, I mean, I've been there three or four times now. There are times um, it will give you the creeps, yeah. So um, what is generally considered the most haunted room in the house, if you go upstairs all the way uh, down the hall, that room at the very end, um, that room does get creepy for for sure. Um, caught quite a bit of activity there. It's uh, The house has a fascinating history. The whole That whole area right there has a fascinating history. And so um, I've slept there overnight and, you know, I've lived to tell the tales. So, um, you know, I've had some nights that were quiet and other nights that we had a lot going on. So um, 
very, very cool house. So recommend checking it out if you have not yet already. So let's see what else I have here up my sleeve. Um, so I was asked to include the the Bell Witch. Um, so this one's kind of interesting because there are a lot of um, crazy stories associated with the Bell Witch. And I do have a video on the Hunter Road Media YouTube channel that um, basically it's, what, six different witch stories. And I include that one in there. Um, you know, a lot of controversy over whether uh, the... Basically, it's like a haunting that that went on there. Whether it was really the um, uh, the curse of Kate Batts, or if it was the you know a summoned spirit that came and haunted there. There's the stories about President Andrew Jackson when he, when he was still a general coming by and visiting uh, the house because John Bell uh, served under him, uh, and uh, yeah, he was scared off basically. And, uh, you know, so there's some interesting stories associated with the, the Bell Witch house. And of course, there's still the cave there as well that people like to go and visit. And, um, yeah, it's, I think it's, I mean, it's an old, old property and I don't doubt that it has its haunts. And I think it's, again, one of those where, you know, some of the legends has been morphed into the story of the haunts, and it's hard to, to discern, okay, what part is legend, what part is the actual haunting. Uh, Pat Fitzhugh uh, has a fantastic book, and I'm going to bring him on the show. I've been meaning to do it all year, and it's not probably not going to happen this year. He has a uh, fantastic book on uh, the Bell Witch haunting, so I definitely recommend uh, picking that up. So, what's, what is Tom here? Stephen King's story, 1408, was based on the Palmer House in Chicago. Good ghost story. Yeah, that was a, uh, yeah, that was definitely a good one. Uh, good movie, too. So, Carrie Parrish, uh, Bell Witch site setting isn't far from me at all. I guess it would be pretty near you, isn't it? Uh, but, yeah, definitely uh, worth looking into because the, the stories and legends are really, really interesting. Um you know, like with with uh, John Bell, what was interesting is, um, you know, his as his health deteriorated, you know, they attributed it to, you know, the ghost and the curse and all that. He ends up dying of poisoning one night. And so the question is, you know, how did he suddenly become poisoned? Because, you know, his health was just, you know, declining, declining, declining while his wife's was improving. So, you know, you have all these different, you know, crazy ideas and speculations as to, you know, why that was happening. So, um, yeah, definitely uh, look into that a bit more. We're not going to have time to, to really dive into all of that this evening. So uh, the other one that I wanted to throw out there just to kind of illustrate, you know, creation of myth, because we have modern stories and myths that are coming about. Uh, Helltown one is certainly um, you know, a lot more recent over the last, what, 40 years. Uh, one that we have uh, through, you know, basically the internet these days, you know, is Slender Man. We've talked about 
this on here before as well, where you have a number of people trying to say, you know, this thing is true, it's real. We've talked about tulpas on here before as well. Is this, has this thing morphed uh, through thought form? But, you know, again, it all started as an internet urban legend, you know, stemming from two photographs uh, created by the username of Victor Surge on the Something Awful forums. You know, it was a Photoshop contest. Okay, submit a creepy photo. Well, here was his, you know, first uh, entry into that. You know, here's all these kids and this creepy guy. The thing that made it different, his entry, was that he included a little creepy story along with it. Uh, he did the same with this photo as well. And I know you uh, you guys on the podcast uh, can't see these, but, um, you know, here are children at play, and then there's, you know, the creepy guy in the background with the suit and the white face and the basically tentacles. It was that little snippet of story because it was so mysterious, just kind of cryptic in the creepy photo, and people loved it. So he started creating more, another photo, another piece of the story. And because this fascinated people on this forum, again, it's just an internet thing, other people started making their own Slender Man photos and providing their own pieces of story. So all of this lore started being put together over this, you know, guy, right? <laughs> Uh, that never existed. And unfortunately, um, a lot of kids ended up believing that this thing was real. And of course, there was the tragedy with the girls who tried to murder their friend. And now you have people believing that, well, he might actually be real. He might actually be a, you know, a tulpa, you know, a thought form brought to life and manifesting. And I, that's not to say that I don't believe you know, a thought form can't be created. You have people into tulpamancy that are trying to create, uh, you know, tulpas of their own favorite anime characters. And I'm not going to try to discredit any of that, but through, at least for me, for all the research that I've done to date, I I haven't seen anybody show me like a, like a real, quote-unquote real, Slenderman sighting. It all goes back to the lore uh, in stories that have been created about, you know, this guy. And nothing that's actually real and substantiated. You know, it's, it's you know, people always ask me about, you know, Slender Man when it comes to like shadow people and all that. It's like, well, you know, I've got plenty of real sightings of shadow people, uh, you know, my own experiences and people from all over, but of Slender Man, no. So I haven't bought into this idea that he's actually a tulpa. Right now, all we have are these different you know, legends and stories that have been created. I think the only part that you could say is real about this, like I said, you know, usually within these, there's some nugget of truth. And I think where that comes into play with this is you have these kids with a creepy adult. This is that, to me, this is like that pedophile pervert uh, at the parks creeping on the kids. And, you know, he's going to come and steal your child away. I think that's the nugget of truth in here. 
and they built these legends and stories on top of them. So that's like a more modern version of urban legends that we're now seeing pro proliferate over the internet, where before it was word of mouth, um, or you might see you know some little story in the newspaper, but usually, you know, these are almost like I mean, I include the stole one that we talked about earlier in my campfire tales book. So you know, these campfire tales get passed around, and you know. The, the story gets changed a little bit here and there as, as you go along. And before you know it, you have this entire yarn that's been created around something that was just, you know, this one little nugget, and now it's like, you know, completely blown out of proportion. So, well, we are about our at our hour mark. Um, oh, B3 Airspace, uh, like La Llorona. Uh, yeah, La Llorona is another one like that. And, you know, she is born out of, well, I mean, I, I don't doubt some sort of tragedy happened at some point with a woman and her children where she murdered her children. That's the La Llorona story. I think over time, other elements of that story got added upon, like this whole idea of her going up to the pearly gates and being sent back who would have been up at the pearly gates to witness this happening? You know, it, it, that's part of the story, but we've seen it in other cultures. It's a, a primarily a uh, Mexican legend, but there are people who relate it to, um, you know, some different Aztec stories. There are even, uh, stories going back into Greek mythology that are very similar, that it could have some, even some roots in there. Um, but I don't doubt that there was some tragedy at some point with a woman and her children that this happened. Um, some of the Japanese tales, like the slit mouth woman, um, I don't doubt that at some moment in history that, uh, this husband did this to his wife or something very similar to his wife and now comes about over all the years and years and years of the story being told, this legend of the slit mouth woman that just was born out of some uh, some tragedy from you know hundreds of years ago so that's that's kind of the the mo of these stories that grain of truth and over time it grows into something bigger so all right we are going to go ahead and wrap this up. Really appreciate everybody joining in tonight. Uh, fantastic questions. And I appreciate all of these suggestions for tonight's show and uh, discussing urban legends.